Crossway Church Sermon Audio. 2 Kings chapter 18, we'll be there in just a moment. <clears throat> Have you ever faced off with a bully? Someone said yes. <laughs> I remember those glorious middle school years. We used to call them junior high school years. But now they're middle school years. I think that's the latest term. It was gym class. I was a scrawny, skinny kid. Hard to believe now, but I was one of the youngest in my class. I wasn't looking for a fight. I didn't want a fight. But one of the bigger boys began to aggressively push and then punch me. Feel bad for me, don't you? I remember that terrible moment of anxiety sort of hanging there in space. It felt like it lasted forever. What should I do? He's bigger and stronger and more aggressive. I was afraid. But then indignation rose inside me and I reacted. Somehow I realized in that moment that I'd rather get beat up, I'd rather take that chance and get beat up than live under the oppression of a bully. I don't remember it because everything was a blur, but they told me that I punched him and that he fell to one knee. The fight was over before it began. He never bullied me again. And of course, we became good friends after that, as often happens with boys. I'm guessing something like that has played out many times for many here. And part of what we learned was that some things that we face in life, some things in life are more important than simply survival. Here's another example that demonstrates this, that we're all familiar with. Masking. It's been about two and a half years since we heard two weeks to stop or to slow the spread. Two weeks to uh, flatten the curve in response to COVID-19. In those early months, as we grappled with the issue as a church, we began to see that there was really no end in sight to the push for masking. And this was turning into functionally perpetual masking. There are people that would have us even now all be in masks and all be socially distanced even now. So that meant in practice functionally perpetual masking is what we saw going on around us and that meant in practice people were being called to mask whenever they were together with no end in sight. But let me put this to you. Is that life? Would we really be okay to live in a world where we don't see anyone's face? Is it worth it? And when you start to ask questions like, what is a human being? And how and why has God made us? And what is life? And what is the purpose of life? Well, the Scriptures give us good answers to those questions. Humans are made in the image of God, and clearly, one of the primary ways we demonstrate that we are in His image is through our faces. God gave us faces, not to be covered, but to shine. The face is the way we are known and the way that we know others. 
The face of a believer is to shine forth Christ in this world. Therefore, functionally perpetual masking is a diminishment of humanity, and that is not living. It's not living, and it's not worth it. Now, it has become highly debatable whether or not masks are actually effective to increase survival rates, but that's not my point. My point is this. There are principles, including being a human made in the image of God, there are principles more important than survival. Patrick Henry believed this about freedom or liberty. He said, give me liberty or give me death. Those words and the principle of liberty are very much worth thinking about. But realize that when he said this, he was not pontificating. He's not uh, pretending to be bold and courageous. This is not bloviation. This was a very real possibility that he would get death instead of liberty. He put it out there. He's saying it. Life is not life if I cannot be free. Therefore, I will fight for freedom because I would rather die than live without it. Some things, dear friends, are worth more than survival. I wonder, do we have any principles? Do you and I have any principles, any truths, any convictions that transcend survival? Or is it survival for us at all costs? That's not a Christian worldview. It's not a biblical way of thinking. Today, the Scriptures are going to challenge us to put a particular truth about life above life. Because without this principle, life is only survival. It's really not living, and it's really not worth it. And that principle that needs to be at the very top of our convictions about life that must happen in us and through us is more important than life is that we glorify God. Put God's glory above your survival, and you will live. Put God's glory above your survival and you will live. When you live for God's glory, you gain life too. True life, real life, full life. But if you put survival above all else, including God's glory, then you're already dead. I say it, you're already dead. If you put survival above God's glory and above all else, then you'll only be a slave till you die. Let's see this truth come out through a few kings, shall we? First of all, there's the best king, the best king. Now, the first thing to know about the best king is that he's not really the best king. But as we read the text, see if you can spot why I have him here as the best king. This is a little bit longer portion. We're going to read uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. And when I read this, it's, it's going to be the longest portion that we read today. We're actually covering through chapter 21. We won't get to read it all. This is the longest portion we'll read, but try to just hang in there. And as I read, see if you can spot why I'm calling him here. I've written him down as the best king, okay? So 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, 
king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those who were before him. For he, felt, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Israel carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. So you probably saw in the middle there why I have written here that he's the best king. Verse 5 said that, says there was no other king of Judah like him before or after. But of course, there is Solomon. He was a pretty great king. And there is Josiah. Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah, will also be called uh, uh, one of the best kings. Similar language will be written about him. And then even more importantly, there's King David, who's the preeminent pinnacle king of the old covenant kingdom. So who's really the best king of Judah then? Well, I don't think that this is simply uh, hyperbole. Rather, the Scripture is saying that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord in ways that no other king had to. He trusted in the Lord more in certain key ways than even David did. And the Spirit here breaks down Hezekiah's trust in the Lord in two simple ways that can help us understand and help us understand today what it means to trust the Lord as well. So verse 6 of chapter 18, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. So first of all, Hezekiah held fast to the Lord. Think of a clinging vine. In itself, a vine will not grow straight up 10, 20, 30, let alone 100 feet in the air. It doesn't grow straight up like that. It may crawl along the ground, but it needs something to cling onto. And when it clings to a strong tree, it can climb to the greatest heights. A little vine can make it to the greatest heights. When we cling to the Lord, we hold fast to Him because our lives do depend on Him. Our very lives depend on Him. A vine clings to a tree like its life holds on, like its life depends on that tree. Our lives actually do depend on the Lord Jesus. So trust looks like holding fast or clinging to Christ. And this means practically that if anyone asks you to, if anyone tempts you 
two, if anyone demands that you leave Christ, that you give up Christ so that you're available for something else, if they ask you to, if they tempt you to, if they demand that you leave Christ, you do not do it. Don't do it. You cling to Him throughout your life, and you count everything and everything, anything and everything as lost in comparison to having Him. That's what trusting the Lord looks like. If you were to lose everything, are you willing to lose everything to cling to Him? That's what it looks like to trust Him. Second, trust looks like following Him. Have you ever traveled in a car caravan? Inevitably, someone in the following vehicle is going to have some criticism for the driver of the leading vehicle, right? It's just going to happen. Either they're going so slow, what are they, 80 years old? No offense to our seasoned members here. Or, it's either that or, are they an idiot? Why are they going so fast? I can't keep up with them. Next time you're in a caravan, just keep it in mind. It'll come. The criticism will come. The truth is, it's possible that the criticism in that situation is right because we're human and we're fallen sinners and we're usually not as good at, at driving as we think that we are. Do you ever, ever realize how many people think, oh, I'm a good driver? And the people around them are like, I would never even get in a car with you. <laughs> and when you're on the road, I want to be off of it. But when we're following Jesus, we are to do as Hezekiah did. Hezekiah kept the commandments of Moses. He followed. He followed Moses. God gave the commandments to Moses, and he followed the commandments. He followed the Lord. Now, the law of Moses was especially targeted to the old covenant people of God. And if we have trusted Jesus, we are part of the new covenant people of God, purchased by the blood of the Lord, shed on the cross, and inheritors of the promise of an eternal life because of the resurrection of Jesus. In the new covenant, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. He brought it to its fulfillment, and he calls us to a righteous life in him who is the fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law. So to follow Jesus means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that we have received in the name of Jesus and through Jesus. We're to follow our Lord Jesus in righteousness. And the grace that we've received in Christ enables us to do so. Hezekiah trusted the Lord by holding fast to the Lord and by following him. We are called to do the same kind or to have the same kind of trust in our Lord Jesus. And the Lord blessed Hezekiah and he blessed Hezekiah's trust in him. You know, if you go back to the last king of Judah before Hezekiah, that's Ahaz. That's Hezekiah's father. And things were on a very bad track under Ahaz. It's so much so, it looked so bad, that Judah looked like they were going to quickly follow Israel into defeat and deportation by the Assyrians. But Hezekiah's trust in the Lord turned everything around. And this included, uh, this included uh, not being under the thumb of a foreign power. 
You see, whenever Israel was under the thumb of a foreign power, it only happened because they had rebelled against the Lord and they were refusing to repent. And that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And here we see that Hezekiah is trusting the Lord and he finds the strength and the courage to resist and throw up the oppression of that time's superpower, super, superpower, for centuries, Assyria. He refuses to bend the knee to Assyria. And Hezekiah prospered in every way. He was putting God's glory first, as we ought to do in our own lives. Put God's glory above your survival, and you will live. We looked at the best king, right? The best king. Now let's look at the great king. Back in verse 8, we saw that Hezekiah struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza. That statement is demonstrating part of how Hezekiah was rebelling against Assyria. Assyria controlled Philistia at the time. They controlled the Philistines, and therefore they had control over their seaports, which in turn controlled some of the trade routes that that area had with Egypt. By taking over this area, by taking it back, Hezekiah was pushing back Assyrian power, and he was opening up trade with Egypt. Hezekiah made other strategic moves against Assyria too. Apparently, this was all happening at a time of transition between the Assyrian kings of Shalmaneser and perhaps Sargon too, and then Sennacherib, who's the bad guy in our story today. And so you can imagine that through those transitions of power that things were a little bit unsettled back in Nineveh, Assyria's capital. And so, and so Hezekiah was seizing on the opportunity to throw off Assyria's power. And of course, Assyria is not very happy about this. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. Look at verse 13. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. This keeps happening over and over in their history. This is tons of silver and about a ton of gold, millions of dollars that he gives the Sennacherib and the Assyrians to go away. But even though he does that, and for this reason, it's probably completely unnecessary, and probably Hezekiah shouldn't have done it, but Sennacherib is not satisfied. He takes it, but he's not satisfied with it and apparently keeps coming. And whether that happened right at that time or maybe a few years later, either way, he comes to Jerusalem, or, or, he, or he continues to move toward Jerusalem. Doesn't get there. He doesn't get to Jerusalem. Keep in mind that Hezekiah is very aware of what the Assyrians did to the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, which was Samaria. The northern kingdom no longer exists because the Assyrians came in. They made it all the way to, to Samaria, the capital. They besieged the city for three years, finally defeating it and then deporting the Israelites and mixing them all up. The northern kingdom is gone. Can you imagine being in an ancient city for three years, a walled city for three years, 
unable to get out. What's the water supply like? What's the food supply like? What, what are the, uh, the hygienic conditions in the place? It was a terrible situation. Hezekiah is fully aware of the stories. He knows what went down there, the horrors the people must have experienced, the terror for those in Jerusalem, for Hezekiah and for those in Jerusalem, just a little way south of Samaria, was real. And Sennacherib sends his high officials to Jerusalem to terrorize them and to call them to surrender, and Hezekiah's high officials go to meet them. The officials stand in a place where many of Jerusalem's soldiers lined up on a wall can hear them talking, and the Assyrians speak in a language, loudly they speak in a language that the people understand. The Assyrian calls in a loud voice and seeks to devastate the Israelite resolve with various arguments. But this is how he begins his speech. And the Rabshakeh said to them, that, that word Rabshakeh means uh, high official. The Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? And there's a whole speech there. You can read about it later. Please do. But notice what he calls the king of Assyria when he goes to speak on his behalf. He calls him the great king, and the Assyrian kings were great. Everyone feared them. The Assyrian empire stretched from the far east all the way down at points, all the way down to Egypt and up into what would be now Turkey. It was massive. They were the country you hoped did not show up on your doorstep. They were constantly pushing to expand their boundaries. They had been doing this for hundreds of years. They assumed that they should be the empire of the world and kept pressing and kept pressing and kept pressing. But there's only one great king for real, and it is no earthly king. Hezekiah and his officials are devastated by the words of the emissaries of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And Hezekiah reaches out to Isaiah, desperately reaches out to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, reassures Hezekiah. He reveals to Hezekiah that Sennacherib will have to go back to Assyria unexpectedly. And while he's back in Assyria, he's going to be killed violently. And then when Hezekiah is again threatened by the Assyrians through a letter in the same time frame... Isaiah sends word again to reassure King Hezekiah that he gives him words from the Lord and he gives this king who trusts the Lord words that reassure him. Let me read parts of it to you. So go to 2 Kings now, go to chapter 19, 2 Kings 19 verse 20. And I'll read a little portion, we'll skip down a little further, read another little portion. 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. 
the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. So these, these first couple of lines of this poem that Isaiah sends, these are God speaking to Sennacherib and the Assyrians. And, and it's, like, it's like Sennacherib is looking up, listening to God, and, and behind him is Hezekiah and the people of Israel. And, and what's it says? She wags her head. It's like she shakes her head. She's like, you're crazy, man. You're crazy because you took on the great king. You called yourself the great king? This is the holy one of Israel. Your gods are no gods. This is the God. Down to verse 25, chapter 19. Look at verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old. What now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. You see, God had called Sennacherib to the role that he had for him. God was using Sennacherib for his purposes, but Sennacherib was proud and was raging against the Lord and was complacent about the God, the great king, the holy one of Israel. God is saying, you call yourself the great king, but there's only one great king, and I am that great king. I am the holy one of Israel. In verse 28, the Lord says what he's going to do to Sennacherib. There are carvings and reliefs that the Assyrians had left behind. Uh, one of them is in, the, uh, is in the British Museum. And what they did is they left behind, it showed what they did to defeated peoples and their kings. Sometimes they would put a hook in the nose or in the lips of the king and the royal household or the high officials, and they would chain them together in a chain gang, and they would lead them captive to Nineveh, chained with hooks in their faces. Do you see what God said in there in verse 28? He says, I'm going to do that to you. I'm going to put a hook in your nose and lead you back to Nineveh. Sure enough, the next day when the Israelites in Jerusalem arose, they found close to 200,000 dead Assyrian soldiers. The angel of the Lord had struck them down, much like he had struck down the firstborn in Egypt many years prior to this. He strikes down the Assyrian soldiers, liberating Jerusalem, and perhaps for even another reason that we're not told about here, perhaps that and another reason, Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh. He gets back to Nineveh. At some point in his time back there, he goes into the house of his vile false god to worship, and his own sons take swords and cut him down and kill him. Why did the Lord save Jerusalem and his people? Why did he do it? For I will defend this city to save it, 
for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. You see, God did this for His own glory. There are other reasons too. God has His primary reason, which is His own glory, but He does it for other reasons too, including the good of His people and the good of Hezekiah and for the sake of His servant David and the covenant He made. But He does it for His own sake, for His own glory. The first reason is the most important reason and the reason that you and I must be oriented uh, to the glory of God in our own lives. It is His glory. Everything that happens to us, brothers and sisters, must be filtered through this great reality, that great reality that you and I exist. We, we draw breath. We stand awry, uh, 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 upright so that we may glorify God. It's why we're here. We need to orient to that and see all of life through that filter. What's happening in your life? Think about it right now. Take a moment. What's happening in your life? If someone were to say what's new, you might not have much new, but you might. You might have something that's hard. You might have something difficult. You might have something you don't know what to do with. You might have something to do that you just don't want to do because it's, it's something you don't want to do. You may have something wonderful, something you're celebrating. What's happening in your life right now? Whatever it is, it is happening to the glory of God. Therefore, the stance of your heart must be the orientation of your mind the way your attitude is positioned must be to trust God and to glorify Him in that situation. And what must you do to glorify Him in that situation? Whatever is going on and whatever God is calling to you, do what glorifies Him because that's what you're made to do. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God that comes to you through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify God with your life. Don't think of your survival first. Don't do that. Think first of His glory because whatever glorifies Him will cause you to live and it will be what's best for you as well. Hezekiah lived and Jerusalem lived without oppression after this event because they sought to glorify God in it, which was their purpose for being. Put God's glory above your survival and you will live. Now, we've seen Hezekiah the king, we've seen Sennacherib the king, and we've seen our Lord God, the king, the great king. Now let's look at a third king, the broken king, the broken king. The broken king is actually the same as the best king. It's Hezekiah, the best king. We're going to see his brokenness here. I don't mean in humility broken. I don't mean in repentance. I, I mean broken in temptation and sin, broken from the way that he ought to have been, much as you and I are. 
broken. Look at 2 Kings chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of 2 Kings chapter 20. And as I read it, see if you can spot the first way that we're going to see Hezekiah's brokenness in this passage. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with the whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, this is amazing. The Lord heals Hezekiah and gives him 15 more years. That's really wild when you think about it, right? Like, he prayed and God extended his life. Amazing. But do you see his brokenness in this? The Lord tells him, the Lord decrees and tells him, you're going to die. And his entire response, Hezekiah's entire response is, no, please no. Now that seems reasonable, right? I mean, it certainly seems quite human. I I don't want to die either. But remember, God is making known to Hezekiah, telling him in, in advance, His ordained plan for Hezekiah, it's death. It's terrible. But it is God's plan for him. And we have to ask, we have to ask, can you think of anyone else in the Bible who was facing certain death as revealed to him as God's plan for him? And I'm sure most of you are already thinking, yeah, Jesus. Right, Jesus Jesus shows us how to respond. Jesus is facing certain death. And his father reveals to him that he's going to die. And the manner in which he would die. And Jesus shows us how to respond. He says, Father, if it is possible, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus is not delivered from death. The father doesn't say to him, okay, in three days, uh, you'll be healed, or you, you won't face this anymore. You won't have to worry about the crucifixion. He doesn't say that, but he does say in three days, you'll live forever. And so Jesus, in a sense, he doesn't get delivered, right? He dies, but through it, he gains life. Real life, incorruptible life, 
the Father is glorified in him, and Jesus receives glory in it as well. That glory doesn't happen if the Father removes the crucifixion from the path that Jesus has to walk in, but that glory explodes into radiance forever because Jesus puts the Father's glory first. And so should have Hezekiah, and so must we. Do you see the difference between Jesus and Hezekiah? Hezekiah says, no, no, I don't want to die. Remember how good I've been and how useful I've been and how I I read the Bible all the time and how I took away the high places. Remember all those good things I did. Anything but death. Just let me survive. That's Hezekiah's response. Does it sound familiar to our own hearts from time to time? But Jesus says, he says, Father, please no, please, but let your will be done. And he doesn't even mention his righteous life or all the great works he's done for, for the Lord, for, for the Father. The Lord doesn't go into how he's the only one who's actually ever obeyed, and so he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't do what Hezekiah did, and he doesn't do what you and I are tempted to do. You see, some things are far more important than survival. And this is not just an end-of-life issue. It's an everyday issue for us believers. How do we interpret what is happening to us? Do we just scream, no, God, how could you? This is not fair. Don't you remember how faithful I've been and how I've tried to be righteous before you and how I've done these good things? Remember that time I sacrificed my own time so I could serve someone else? Remember that time when I gave that much money? Remember I could have spent that on myself, but I didn't do it. That's what you and I are tempted to do. Have you forgotten how faithful and upright I've been, oh God? Surely I deserve better than this. Please take it away. Or do we take our request to the Lord, express our desire for His glory first, and walk in the good knowledge that if our life brings glory to Him, then I can bear anything because that's what I'm made to do. That's what I'm made to do. See, it's an everyday matter for us. There are some things more important than survival. And as I said, it's also an end-of-life issue. You see, all of us need to grapple with this. Every believer needs to come face-to-face with this reality that when God appoints our time to go, Let us face it the way Jesus faced it. He gives us the grace to face it the way he faced it, which is, Lord, I I don't want to leave my loved ones. I I don't want to leave this good life you've given me. I'd like to stay. I don't want to bear the pain of what's in front of me, but your will. I've made my request to you. I've told you, but, but having said that, God, I say your will be done because my life is meant to glorify you. And then we humbly submit to his will. Determine now, brothers and sisters, to glorify God 
to glorify the Lord in your death, to follow the Lord, to trust the Lord in your death as well as in your life. You know, every saint that dies well encourages the whole body that's coming behind them. Teach us. Teach us how to face even death, trusting the Lord. I think we can gain even more understanding by looking at a couple more ways that Hezekiah is tempted and broken, just briefly. Now, you would think it would be enough for the prophet Isaiah to say, you'll be healed in three days. But no, not for Hezekiah. We see a trembling man here, a man who is mostly concerned about his own survival. He wants a sign in that moment. I know it's three days. Three days isn't that long to wait. We don't even have microwaves, so I don't even know about cooking things in seconds. So what's the difference? Three days. But he says, no, I want a sign now. And he asks God to give him a sign that he's going he's to be fine, he's going to be healed in three days. And so he asks God to turn the shadow back in an unnatural way up the stairs. And God does it. He gives him the sign. But it's not Hezekiah's best moment. You see, God himself should be all the reassurance any of us needs in life. If he promises to keep us to the end, to give us his Holy Spirit, to remain with us, to give us everything we need for life and godliness, that should be all we need. If he's given us all the grace that that we could possibly ever need, more grace than our sin, through the death of Christ, through the resurrection of our Lord, if he's given us the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, and if the Lord himself has gone before us in death and life, this should be enough. For any of us, I know we're weak and frail. We all are tempted to struggle, but let it be enough, brothers and sisters. Let it be enough assurance that we can trust the Lord for whatever He calls us to. Let me show you a third way Hezekiah is broken. While he's sick, the king of Babylon sends envoys. And, of course, it takes time to get there from Babylon to Jerusalem. In the meantime, Hezekiah is healed. And the idea of the king of Babylon sending envoys seems nice, but it's probably a political move because Babylon and Israel are probably allies against Assyria at this time. Babylon is not at this point a world power. That's going to happen soon. And at any rate, Hezekiah seems to be better by the time they come. And so when they get there, he wants to be the greatest host they've ever experienced. And oh, wow, he's just, he, he's just amazing. You know, he, he wants the praise that Solomon received. And so he goes around, he, he shows them the grand tour, decides to give them an all-access tour to every precious item in the capital city. He shows off. And in doing so, he shows zero prudence or discretion with foreign pagans who have now noted the treasures that are stored in the city of Jerusalem. Probably on the way home, they're writing up an itinerary, talking, oh, that's right, remember that? Oh, yeah, that was really amazing. Yeah, that was solid gold. There's a lot of treasure there, and they clearly passed it along. Isaiah, the prophet, comes and rebukes Hezekiah and prophesies that Babylon will, in fact, do to Jerusalem the very things he was afraid that the Assyrians would do to them. 
The only difference is that this isn't going to happen in Hezekiah's lifetime. It's going to happen in the future. It's going to happen to his children, his sons, and to his grandchildren, his grandsons. What a terrible proclamation. What a terrible prophecy. What a terrible judgment to have received. And yet, do you know how Hezekiah responds to this? Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Hezekiah uses noble and spiritual sounding speech in the presence of the prophet. It sounds like he's saying, I accept. I accept the Lord's punishment. I accept the consequence. I accept responsibility for my actions, except they're not going to, the responsibility doesn't fall on him. The consequence falls on his, on his uh, successors. So it's easy for him to say. How often it's easy. How often words are cheap. How often people position themselves to sound far more noble than they are. God help us when we do it too. And let us learn integrity in our words, to be thoughtful about the things we say so that we don't follow that example of Hezekiah. And isn't this, when you think about what's happening here, you know, he's saying spiritual sounding things, but his heart is revealed to us as well. And there he's basically saying, I don't care about the future of Jerusalem or my family as long as everything's good in my time. As long as I don't see it, I don't care what happens to them. Well, thanks a lot, right? That's not love. And isn't that perfectly consistent? Think about that. Isn't it perfectly consistent with someone who prizes survival above all else? Do you see how weaselly that is? Do you see how pathetic, how unmasculine, how ignoble that is? Do you remember when David's child that he had with Bathsheba through adultery was born? And the prophet came, Nathan came and said that the child would die. David fasted and prayed with all his might, beseeching God for the sake of the child. He didn't want his sin the consequence of his sin to fall on the child. I think if it was Hezekiah, Hezekiah might have simply said in his heart, no problem, I'm not the one dying. Take note, brothers and sisters, it is base and worthless and dishonorable to allow ourselves to be inwardly driven by our own comforts and cowardice and survival to the harm of those that are counting on us. Let us repent of such thoughts like Hezekiah had. We all have thoughts like that, don't we? We all have self-preserving, uh, pre- uh, excuse me, we all have self-preserving survivalistic thoughts. We're all tempted to put survival at all costs above everything else. God help us. Let us repent of those thoughts. Do you do that? Do you hold your own heart accountable that when those thoughts pass through your mind, Do you repent of them? Do you identify them? That's what we need to do. Don't wait until someone says, you shouldn't have said that or you shouldn't have done that. Instead, wage the war with the flesh internally. Glorify the Lord in your heart and your mind. Let the Lord's glory mold you when you have that thought. 
that's more about your glory than God's. Strike it down inside. Oh God, please forgive me for that wicked thought against you. Fill my heart and mind with righteous thoughts. Correct yourself. Oh no, my thoughts shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be, oh no big deal, I won't be around when that happens. It shouldn't be that way. It should be, wait a second, what will glorify you? Okay, yes, let me, let me love them now. Let me care for them now. What must I do now to position them best? One of the hallmarks of two-term presidents in the United States is that some scandal always seems to mark the second term. Whether that scandal is true or not, it seems to mark that term. And I guess it's because their enemies have gotten more time to figure out how to attack them effectively. But Hezekiah's second half of his reign is disastrous. Not just marked with a scandal, it's disastrous for a couple of reasons. First, the situation that we just talked about with Babylon's envoys. That doesn't happen if Hezekiah accepts the ordained day of his death and he passes, then this doesn't happen. The Babylonian envoys don't happen. They don't see the treasures and they don't go back and report them. They don't incentivize Babylon to come to Jerusalem. But not only did this happen after Hezekiah's recovery, It was within those 15 years that God gave him that the most evil king to date is born, Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. We're not going to read about Manasseh and his son, son, Ammon, in chapter 21 this morning. But they are the most evil kings of Judah, and they reign for 57 years an incredibly evil monarchy that make Judah guilty of every kind of sin that God will then punish them for through the Babylonians. So we should ask, did Hezekiah really gain more? Did he gain more life by begging for healing? Or would he have had more life by passing at the time of God's declaration. I want to ask Doug to, or, uh, Joel to come. Let's have Joel come. We're going to sing together. Put God's glory above your survival, brothers and sisters. Put His glory above your survival and you will live. If you do not put His glory above your survival, you're already dead. You're already enslaved. But if you put His glory above your survival you'll live. Let's all stand together. I think Hezekiah died by living, and I think he would have lived by dying, if you take my meaning. You see, for the Christian, just like for our Savior whom we follow, it is not death to die. And as Paul taught us, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We only gain life when we lose it in Christ Jesus. And when we lose our lives in Christ Jesus, we live life to the glory of God. Put God's glory above your survival and you'll live. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.